Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of RZ Weekly, our weekly podcast on modern orthodoxy, religious Zionism, and everything in between. Is there anything in between? I don't know. Okay, my name is uh, Ruben Spolter. Uh, I'm here with our mini Mali Brodsky and our Johnny Solomon. And today is a continuation of a discussion we started a couple of weeks ago uh, about a meeting between Rav, uh, Rav Melamed and, uh, and a reform rabbi from France. I forget her name. I will mispronounce it. Johnny, do you remember? I don't remember. Rabbi, Rabbi, Delphine, her. I don't remember. I apologize. I don't want to misquote. Whatever. Uh, but that has generated a number of subsequent articles in the Israeli press. Some people have commented they like when we uh, discuss things that are happening down here in Israel. And it generated a number of articles. Rabbi Malabit himself wrote a series of articles about the issue in his weekly column in Besheba. And this week's past, past week's Makor Rishon uh, included an extensive interview of Rabbi Malamed, as well as an article by Rabbi Yaakov Ariel about why he disagrees with Harav Malamed. And we thought, just, just to clarify, it wasn't an extensive interview of Rabbi Malamed, it was an extensive profile of Rabbi Malamed. It, he wasn't interviewed for it. He said, I've said enough. And so, but the author wrote a great piece about Rav Malamud and his independence as a scholar and how he related to this and many other matters. Well, thank you for the correction. I probably should read that. I read what he wrote. I didn't read the, uh, the profile. Uh, and it's worthwhile to discuss Rav Malamud also at another time and his Derech uh, That's uh, I think that's another interesting discussion. Nonetheless, uh, so what we decided to do today is to go through Rabbi Ariel's article because I feel, and I believe I convinced my colleagues, that it's instructive, it's very important to analyze and comment on Rabbi Ariel's, Rabbi Ariel's, um, Rabbi Ariel's piece because it'll just give people a window into his perspective on these issues and also understand where the religious Zionist, the right-wing religious Zionist world is coming from. And so what we're going to do is the following. Each of us took a section. The article was really divided into three. We're going to either, I translated it, uh, Johnny think translated it, Molly's going to paraphrase. And, uh, and then uh, we'll, after each section, we'll be able to sort of comment and, uh, and, uh, and talk about it. It's also important to understand and acknowledge Harav Yaakov Ariel, Israel Prize winner, is a Gaon and Gadol Torah. And so that being said, it, not even that being said, it's important for us to, for me to say that I want to, uh, I will make very great strides. I happen to have, I have issues with Rabbi Ramid wrote, uh, that will become clear. Rabbi Ariel wrote, thank you. But it's important to say with a sense of reverence, with a reverence for his Gadut Batorah, a sense for his stature as a Gadot Batorah. And I'm going to say that in the beginning. And if, I do, if that doesn't come through, I have great reverence for him. And if it doesn't come through at the end, then please let me know, and hopefully, oh, hopefully it won't. I'm saying, that, I'm saying this, it's important for me, personally, to begin this discussion with that awareness that you can have a Gadol Torah and, and, question, um, and question their perspective on specific issues while still having that same level of reverence and care about that Gadol. Can I digress for a second, Molly? You want to say something? I just have one question. It's, it's, it's a comment, and maybe I'm wrong. I'd like to hear both of your opinions. Um, I, I'm not sure. Would you both put Rav Ariel squarely in the religious Zionist camp? Because there's something about him that's more in the Haredi world. Am I, is that wrong? Meaning, he he's very open to the Datsilumi world. He speaks. I've heard him speak at at, at um, I can think I can say this because he did it publicly, but at Sohar um, conventions, he he's in that. He comes into the world, but. I definitely think he was a member of that. I would say this: he was he was on the Hanhala, the rabbinic leadership of Sohar, until until issues of the chief rabbinate came up. So I, I don't think it was ideological. I'm just saying, in his personal as, life, he seems. He, he, I don't know. I'm not aware. I, my sense is that he's I mean, staunchly like, religious. You know, the, the hat. I think he wears the the. He, I think he has. That's a, not important. That that's the uniform. It is. It isn't. But it's just. I think it's important to point out. Like this is not a guy with a big. That's Hilo Mikipa who came out of, you know, America's Araf. That's not who we're talking about here, which might, it doesn't really matter, but since our, since our mandate is to talk about the religious Zionist world, that's also an interesting piece about people who, like how far religious Zionism stretches and, and 
Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just an inter- it's just a, just well, show us more. Wait, where did where did he? Uh, it's it's an interesting question. I don't I, know. The truth is, I don't know. I, that's for the years. I'm pretty sure for the years I studied in Orot, he was considered like he went there all the time and he's fully supportive. I think he's firmly considered to be in the religious Zionist camp. Okay, so I could be right. I've said there are many different religious Zionisms, uh, but he's certainly got a central place in one of those camps. You know, if you talk about a singular religious Zionism, then you can start talking about places where you are on a certain continuum. I've repeatedly said there are many different camps. In many ways, the term is absurdly stretched, but from everything I know from the crime I've read, from their reverent place in many, many Pate Midrashot, from the way in which he's invited, speaks to, and his voice is heard by uh, many people in that world. Yeah, he has a significant yeah, platform. Yeah, no, 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 let me read you his, okay, so this is good that you raised it, because we should know the answer. Let me read you his bio on Wikipedia. You know, like, you guys can't, you, at home can't. Let me read you his bio. Born in Jerusalem, Rabbi Ariel learned at the Bnei Akiva Yeshiva in Kfar HaRo'eh, Midrash at Noam in Pardes Chana, and Merkaz Arab in Jerusalem. Yeah, there you go. America's the rabbi was considered. Okay. No. So one I, of the I, most yeah. important students of Rabbi Tzvi Yehuda Kuk. Okay. <laughs> I take everything to get more firmly in the, you know. <laughs> and by the way, it, it's interesting. Him, I mean, it's interesting that you didn't know that. It's interesting that you didn't know that. I thought he was educated in more Haredi yeshivas and that he was kind of an open minded Haredi thinker who came into the Datsilumi world and spoke. And the reverence that he got, I, so I was Mm-mm. totally wrong, which is also quite interesting that I was so. Well, first of all, you cannot you cannot be swayed. Totally correct. What he you cannot be swayed by the garb. I, yeah. There's a rav here. His name is rav. There's a rav here. Is rav Tion Luz, who's a great gadol. He's a member of the Beit Din Hagadol. He's a he firmly datitzioni. But as soon as he was appointed the Beit Din Hagadol, he put on the black frock and the big hat. Mm-hmm. Why? That's the dress. That's the dress code today. Now we can argue about that, but that's the dress code, and that's something that people should just understand. That it doesn't. The dress code. If you walk around with a big black hat here in Israel, I, I mean, I personally am less comfortable with that. I, you know, I, I, I'd much rather our rabbis not feel required to do that. But if that makes them comfortable, that's fine with me. But okay, let's wrap up. Just, just one final thing. The word "required" is a. I think, an excessively provocative term. A person can choose to dress as they wish. I think we're all reading in, well, not for the moment me, too much to the, to the dress code. Rabbi Alcabriel dresses a certain way. That's his business. He said certain things. Those certain things pin him within this uh, world, Vita. But, you know, one, I don't think he was persuaded, pushed. It came with the territory, all that kind of stuff. That may apply to some people. We shouldn't presume that applies to all people. Uh, oh, I'm coming. I don't know if he's forced. God, he wouldn't coerce. He does what he wants. But I think that, that in Israel today, the perception that I get is if you want to be a Rosh Hashiva and accept the Yeshiva world, you have you dress like a Rosh Hashiva. That's my that's a good interest. There's another discussion entirely. I didn't think we were going to go there, but nonetheless. So let's go back to Rabbi Ariel, firmly ensconced religious Zionist. He doesn't have to do his bona fides for us. Great Gadol Batorah. So now I'm going to I'm going to actually I'm going to read my section. Okay, and, that, and, obviously, and, and, and I'm just going to read it because it's a, I, I, the reason why I wanted to discuss this is I think it's really important for especially English language uh, uh, listeners who are our, our core audience. I mean, if you're Israeli and Hebrew language listener, good for you. But I think there's a lack of awareness about the, uh, about the, pers- about the perspective of this religious Zionist, of the, what I would call the right-wing religious Zionist world. Says right to everybody else. I translated Google Translate, and English translations are mine. We must distinguish between Reformed Jews and Reformed Judaism. A Reformed Jew, a Reformed Jew is the Jew whose mother is Jewish. And the commandment to love, to the to love a member of Israel applies to him. And she, he should be brought closer to Judaism. The post can refer to him as a captured uh, uh, a child, the Tinoch Shidishva, as he grew up in a Reformed home and environment and should not be blamed for it. Not so are the ideological leaders of the Reform movement such as the rabbis. Now, I put rabbis in quotes because they don't write, like following, it's very much following like Moshe Feinstein's, if you ever read his Igrot Moshe, I digress mm-hmm. here, right? He doesn't write Rav Reformi. He writes Resh Aleph Bet Aleph Yud Samech, rabbis. So that's it, Rabbi Ariel wrote the same thing. He won't call a reform rabbi Rav or Rabbi, he just writes rabbis. Although they are Jewish, they are difficult to define as captured babies. They're studying Judaism, albeit in a very basic form, with one of the purposes of learning being to mock traditional Judaism. They are aware that the reform has departed from the legacy of historical Judaism and built in a stage of its own, different, non-Jewish. 
While civil reform Jews are at most apostates due to appetite, that means a mumar avon. he's using halachic term to describe their halachic status, because they prefer a religion that seems more comfortable, their leaders are closer to the definition of apostates who provoke, a mumar lahachis, as their motives are ideological. Secular Jews must be distinguished from reformers. And here he's talking about chilonim, Israeli chilonim. Secular Jews choose to fulfill some of the Torah commandments from the wellspring of Israel's Torah given at Sinai. Other parts they do not fulfill, mostly for reasons of convenience. That is, their motive is for desire. I'll translate, l'te'avon. They did not create an alternative religion. They would prefer an Orthodox synagogue, even if they go to it on Saturday, unfortunately. They drive to it, i.e. To celebrate a bar mitzvah, say Kaddish for parents, or kol nidre, over a reformed temple. The secular Jews has an Israeli national identity. He knows the people of Israel and is part of it. Secular Zionism was created to strengthen this national identity. In contrast, the reform renewed a new religion, renouncing Israeli nationalism. Molly, you start. Great. I thought we're not going through the whole thing? You want to do the whole thing? No, I, I, what do you think, Johnny? The whole thing? Or I think piece by piece. Uh, I think piece by piece a little okay. bit. Uh, I'm happy to remark, Molly, if you'd want to go first. No, Johnny, you want to go ahead? You go first. Yeah, well. go ahead, Johnny. So, I mean, he he draw, uh, draws a classic rabbinic distinction between uh, reform communities and reform leaders. This is present in all the Chuvot, really, that deal with reform Judaism up until now. Uh, and, and that makes sense in many ways, based on his presumption that leaders who are knowledgeable have made choices which have directly conflicted with tradition and done harm uh, for the future of Judaism. Whereas followers are followers, and, and, and you know, invoking the halakhic terminology of tinoch nishba and the distinction between mumal um, and mumal uh, I hope most of our listeners are at least familiar with some of these uh, concepts. Where I was most bothered by this article uh, wasn't necessarily that piece. It's actually the later piece of the article which uh, concerned me. No, 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 no. But no. But however, when he talked about secular Jews, he ref he was referring exclusively to Israeli secular Jews. And when he spoke about Reform Judaism, he was speaking almost entirely about diaspora Reform Judaism. And I felt the comparison just didn't fit. He was basically making an argument about the strength of secular uh, Judaism in Israel while contrasting it with the weaknesses of reform uh, Judaism elsewhere, and yet not being sufficiently clear. Uh, also, as we're going to see later on in the article, here he's not just emphasizing the importance of being loyal to Halakha, but he's emphasizing the importance of Jewish nationalism. And so mm. he's saying, a secular Jew may not be observant in Halakha, but at least they're nationalistic, but reform Judaism, well, they're not. Well, again, as he re reform Judaism in Israel is quite different to reform Judaism elsewhere. There may well be a minority here. I would strongly question uh, the fact that they have no nationalistic ties. So I felt it was somewhat, uh, it didn't quite fit together that opening paragraph because it seemed to be talking about two different groups as if it was one in, uh, entire group. Mali. Yeah, well, that's interesting, Johnny's point. I hadn't thought about that, that there, you know, reform Judaism in Israel as an entity, which definitely exists. Um, that bothered me less, what, what Johnny's pointing out, because I think his larger point there was um, that there's something, I, I think he makes it later, but he's kind of moving towards it by saying that Chilonim, secular Jews in Israel, um, they, they have a certain, and I think he's correct, right, in what he said, they have a certain, um, many of them, not all, right, we've actually looked at those studies about the percentages, but, but many of them have a certain self-identity identification with tradition and identification with um, the Jewish people and that doesn't have a different quality and I, I understand his concern that he doesn't want that to be replaced with what he sees rightly as American Reform Judaism, right? And Johnny's making a good point that there's a third category here which is Israeli Reform Judaism which might have its own different thing but what bothered me um, and again it's kind of like Johnny but I'll say it here because it started here is that there's something about the tone and the um, the the um, lack of um, nuance in the way that in the way that he views um, reform Judaism that is it, it, it's it's so um, inaccurate that it kind of 
kind of like undermines any points he's trying to make because the truth is that there are points that he's making that I, I, I might technically agree with, but because his language is so dismissive, because um, he his observations are so um, kind of broad and unnuanced and absolute, it for me, it undermines the ability to really um, kind of engage with it as, as an argument. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's not like you can have a dialogue with a person who, who, who so, um, first of all, sees things so black and white. And I think, I think, and this maybe Ruby is your main issue, but so I'll let you say it more. But like, it's not a, it's not really accurate. <laughs> Meaning, it's it, and it reflects. And this, this is something that bothered me throughout the article, um, which is that sometimes I think Israelis, native Israelis, um, speak with certain confidence about the Galut or the diaspora experience, the Gola or the Galut, right? The diaspora experience with with such confidence, and they're so off because. They don't. They don't really have a firsthand experience of it, and mm-hmm. therefore they say things. And again, maybe it's just very Israeli to have that confidence and you know to speak that that strongly. Although again, to Rav Malamud's credit, he does not do that, right? Um, but like, it's it's very difficult and it's very frustrating because you can't. And again, I'll go back to my point. You can't really have a good faith dialogue with somebody who's coming from that perspective. And besides the fact that I, I find it like, and again with all the greatest of respect to Ariel. I really have tremendous respect for, for Ariel. But like, like, in defense of reformed Jews, like the, the language is demeaning, and it continues in the article to be demeaning in a way that I find hurtful, and that's what bothered me. Okay, I have a couple. I have a couple of comments. So my my main comment is that Ariel's familiarity with a reformed Judaism and reformed Jews seems solely restricted to what he recognizes in the halachic literature, meaning it's the Reformed Judaism of Germany in the in you know in the in the 17th and you know in the 18th and 19th century, uh, about which what he said was true, you know all of those things as, as he he refers to it he's going to refer to it in the future about what the changes they originally made and things of that nature, so and it reflects nothing about like reform by its definition I mean even if we assume that orthodoxy is the same orthodoxy as it was in the, at that time, which it's not. Reform, by definition, is its whole purpose is to reform. So it would make sense, one recognizes that, to ask, well, what is Reform Judaism today, uh, irrespective of what it was then? And I'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, Johnny, I have a Lachie question for you. Do you agree with his Havchana, the distinction between the, ortho, the Reform rabbis and the Reform lay, laymanship? That the lay people are what he would call tinok shenishba or mumer leteyavon, and the rabbis are mumer lahachis. Would you agree? And I'll tell. I, obviously, I'm leading you. Would, you. would you agree with that distinction? That I, would you say that a, a reform rabbi is not a tinok shenishba? I'm, I'm asking because so, I'll, I'll yeah. I'll let so you I'll, 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 I'll give you two brief things. Like, I, I want to make another point, but in answer to your question directly. There have been a number of interesting articles some years ago, which actually I've used in my teaching, challenging the model of secular or non-practicing affiliated Jews that was established, as we know, about 120 years ago. Meaning that was a really good way to have a halachic paradigm for secular Jew. Uh, you know, the famous Chuba of the, the Bin and Sion. Nevertheless, uh, and there are a number of articles which I'm happy to, to share online to those who are interested uh, we've had a second look, really, at the lifestyle, the attitudes of secular Jews, of Reformed Jews and Reformed rabbis, and many people have said it, it just doesn't, the model doesn't fit. I mean, it's it's handy to, to think that those halachic labels uh, operate for people today, but it's just not necessarily the case. So you're and talking just, about the label entirely, but I'm saying, on what, what is the assumption that would make a Reformed layperson today a tinok halachically. What would be the assumption? What makes them a tinok shenishba? I.e., they were raised in a set in a, in a home of values that valued either Western Westernization or or Reform Judaism. They were raised in a home of Reform Judaism. They were raised with those values. How is it reasonable to expect them not to want to be Reform Jews? 
Correct. They always say also that they yeah. don't have they, they, they don't have access to to anything else. I don't know if it's that they're raised in a reform background, but it's it's that they they have limited access to um, to what he, what Rabbi Ariel and I guess we would call Torah himself. So how could you expect them to want that? So then nobody well, could be a Kenosha Gizbat. Right, the whole, the whole argument of access, yeah, that came off its head. You may well know there was a whole dis- debate already in the 50s and 60s as to whether secular Israeli Jew, who you would say is already familiar with uh, with Shabbat and has Sfarim, can you really argue that they fit into the model of Kenosha Gizbat? I'd say access is, 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 I suppose, part of the puzzle, but the wider thing is their, their regular experience, their mamalashan, right? Isn't an observant mamalashan, and as a result of that, we categorize them as uh, as tinoch shnishpa, uh, and we do so actually for their benefit, rather than uh, criticizing uh, that term seems to be expressing understanding. Nevertheless, as I say, whether you can argue that multiple generations down the line, especially when information is more available, that's that's part and parcel of the contemporary conversation, which, by the way, should have been expressed in this article and wasn't. I'd say one further thing, which is, though Rav Ariel makes reference basically to the uh, North American reform experience now, later in the article, article, the German reform experience then, he's coming off the back of a conversation between Rav Malamed and a French reform rabbi. And you know what? European reform experience is significantly different to how it was 120 years ago, and it's certainly not like the American experience. So it seems really crazy. I remember when I was reading this article thinking, Johnny, the American American experience is different than it was 20 years ago. Right, but again, we're we're talking about Ramallah, we're talking to this particular leader who represents a particular culture and a particular attitude. Yeah. You know, we've often compared uh, British Wait, Jewry to American Jewry. I want to get back to my point about Tino Shilishba. Okay, before sorry. You go on. And, you know, because that point will come, will come out. My point is, if the basis for Tino Shilishba is your upbringing and the milieu and the culture and the values in which you're raised, and therefore the, the fact that you had access as a Reformed Jew didn't affect you, every Reformed rabbi today was raised in a Reformed household. I, I don't know of one, like maybe one or two examples of reform rabbis that grew up Orthodox and then said, no, I, I want to be a reform rabbi. Mm-hmm. So if the lay people are, are, are Kino Kojinishba, then all of, the, all of the clergy are as well. And, and that, anybody who knows anything about reform Judaism knows that these people were raised in it, grew up in it, and want to become rabbis of it and are proud to do so. And, and well, many, no, I think you're right. Your point is fair. Point. Yeah. There's no th- this idea of what's called a mumer leteavon or a mumer lahachis. Laha, like the idea of a mumer lahachis is the farthest thing from their from from their understanding. There, they are there to lead their communities in the way that they understand Judaism to be, the way that they were raised. Nothing more, nothing less. And they believe that that's the way of bringing their people closer to God, closer to the Jewish people. And to, to, to describe, and maybe, you know, you could say this about literally about, you know, German reform in, in, the, in the 19th century. I don't know. I wasn't there. I assume so. But to apply those labels is, to me, it, it speaks of a complete lack of understanding of the, of the situation today. All right, who had section two? I had section two. I, I, so I won't just agree with that point. And, and, and I think it concurs what you were saying, which is, if your worldview of now is based on the literature which I have on my shelves and, and really important to what, but of then, then you can't really make a, a, a comprehensive remark about conversations that took place a few weeks ago between a French reform rabbi, right, and, uh, and Eliezer Malama. That, okay, you want me to read the, the next piece? Yeah, please. So I'm going to read in English. Uh, hopefully it sounds okay. So he says, uh, the reform religion emerged 200 years ago in Western Europe in the context of the emancipation that allowed Jews to integrate as equal citizens in their countries. The reform enthusiastically embraced this trend. It gave up on its national Jewish identity and it favored the definition of being a German of the Mosaic persuasion. He says, when we say Mosaic, we don't mean Moshe Rabbeinu, but instead Moses Mendelssohn. It turned the synagogue to a temple, which is more like a church than a synagogue in its structure uh, and what it had inside. The reform introduced the organ to their temples. They changed the language of prayer from Hebrew to German. They abolished the mechitza, not for reasons of gender inclusion, but because mixed seating was how seating exists in churches. They raised all references to redemption from the Sidur, as well as references to Jerusalem and the temple. 
and every expression that distinguished Israel from the peoples. They eliminated the practical mitzvot and adopted only those with, uh, that were humanistic, universalistic. And the motive for this was not a moral aspiration from a Yisrael Salanta, uh, but rather a spiritual perspective similar to that of Christianity. There is no need for Torah of practical actions. Instead, it's enough to have a Judaism of spirit. From this preference for, for, for a universalist worldview over a national one, Reformed Judaism recognized intermarriage and resisted any expression of Jewish nationalism, such as Zionism. Herzl initially intended to hold the first Zionist Congress in the German city of Munich, as it was a central city with easy access. However, because of the opposition of the reformers and what they told to the authorities, he was forced to move the Congress to a relatively small town not far away to Baal in Switzerland. The reformers also opposed the Balfour Declaration. The Nazis' rise to power in Germany, the Holocaust, caused reform to change its attitude towards Zionism and to do a form of tshuva. It became clear to all that the attempt to blur the uniqueness of Jewish nationalism and integrate into European nations did not save the reformers from the Nuremberg Laws. It was stated there that an assimilated Jew, even if their mother was not Jewish, was of the Semitic race and was sentenced to destruction. In the chimney smoke of Auschwitz that rose heavenward were reformed Jews who renounced their Jewishness along with ultra-Orthodox Jews. The peoples of the world also rejected the Jews, and they opposed and even prevented Jews from escaping from the Nazi jaws. Given this, a proper solution for the existence of Jews and Judaism was a return to Zion. Reform leaders in America decided to join the Easter route. This act of tshuva must be treated positively as an expression of coming back to Judaism. But the attitude to Jewish nationalism, which was a basis of reform ideology, didn't change fundamentally. Universalism was still superior to particularity, and to this day the trend to blur the Jewish national framework continues. Reformed Jews allow intermarriage, they support intermarried couples, and even arrange ceremonies of their own, sometimes even with the participation of a Christian priest. To silence their conscience, they convert their current spouse or non-Jewish spouse with a mere verbal declaration. Though those in the name of universal humanism justify the Palestinians' arguments against us, and in some cases even cooperate with organizations that deny the existence of the State of Israel, the basic ideas of reform remain unchanged. So I actually, I'm, I'm going to comment on this first, Molly, if you let me, just briefly. First of all, he comes out like the, the themes of Rabbi Ariel and the importance of Jewish nationalism to him, they, they, they've come up, up again and again. And it seems like very striking that to him, almost like greater than the sin of abandoning Torah mitzvot, which he doesn't mention, he really almost sort of like takes that for granted, is the sin of abandoning, of abandoning the idea of Jewish nationalism. Let's leave aside whether that's true now or not. But to him, that sounds like that's a, like, that's a cardinal sin. And, it's, and I wonder why, I mean, obviously, ideologically, it's very important to him, but maybe he's saying this because in this way, this is how we can distinguish between secular Israelis and reformed Jews or reformed leadership. Like secular, you know, the, the secular Israelis who built the state, they at least understood that it means something to be a Jew, that there's a Jewish people, the Jewish nation. Whereas the reform, they not only abandoned Torah, they also abandoned what it means to be a Jew as part of a Jewish nation. A very, I, find, I found that fascinating to comment on that, that this is such an important theme of this. Now that you go ahead. Yeah, no. So uh, first of all, I agree with you that it's interesting that it's it's an important theme. Uh, it makes sense. I do want to say, though, um, I'm going to say and try to say this very carefully. I think that it is important to say that it is true that like like it's true also in this point, And it's true also in the distinction between the leadership and the layman that there is a um, small but very vocal um, group of American reform Jews, right, that really do, um, how would I say this, carry the standard, right, that he's objecting to, and that really does exist. So, like, to be fair to Ariel, there, there's, there is what to be concerned about, right, which is, again, what comes back for me to, like, he's just making a really, um, it's it's way too sweeping. It's way too broad. That it, it it that that makes it insulting and inaccurate. But like when he's like, it's true that 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 Reform Judaism embraced universalism. Like that, that happens to be true, right? And and it's also true that like 
they, they, that like the issue of where the Zionism comes in and how that how and again I I, I agree with Ruby and I agree with you know everybody that the majority of Reformed Jews are, are Zionists and support the state of Israel but like to pretend that we don't have an issue with um, diaspora relations and certain voices which which are not all reformed voices, right? But that, that Rav Ariel isn't sensitive to a real issue that exists today, right, would also be false. So, like, I, I just want to not... Do you know what I mean? It's like it's like he is... It, he, there's something there. He's just not... It, it's just... His language is so insulting. It's so disproportionate. He, he He's like... You know, basically, like taking a taking a blowtorch and like torching an entire community. Um, when when he what he might want to say more accurately would be like, I've heard this from person X and I object to that, and I've heard this from person Y and I object to that. And even if he wants to say, and they're speaking in the name of Reform Judaism, and I have this objection to Reform Judaism, but he's basically just torching to the ground everything that has to do with Reform Judaism, and that's that's where the problem lies for me. Well, I, I, I'm not, of course, I don't want to be, give, give them the impression, like, I, 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 that, you know, obviously there's so much about Reform Judaism that I totally disagree with. And I think that you are right that there's a lot of vitriol against Israel, per se, in much of the Reform community. I but, don't know if I'd say vitriol. I'm saying it could be that there's... No, I would, I would tell you that, especially from the leadership, from what I hear. I don't think I, it's... I don't it, even it, know. I'm just saying I, I know from what I see very, very broadly that there, there are certain public voices that... Um, yes, but are they doing it in the name of because they're Reformed Jews or they're doing it's it because... not because they're Reformed Jews, but unless... I, I mean, listen, I don't oh, know, but... So that's what I'm saying. I mean, no, you cannot... Like I, Ruby, but but sure you happens to be Reformed and he and he's he's a he he takes a no, position no, really, really. that's pro Palestinian because, and against the state of Israel. No, but you I know? would say that you can't ignore the fact that because Reformed Judaism is more universalist, because Reformed Judaism puts a greater emphasis, let's say, on values that are about um, um, so, social, you know, I, I don't want to use any catchphrases here, but like, so I don't want to say social justice and I don't want to say tukun because I don't want to use any catchphrases, but whatever, you know, like they put a, a very big emphasis on, on, on justice and on, 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 on themes of, 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 um, you know, doing the right thing, that's a lot of what their Judaism is. So it's, it, there is a tie between what their main focuses are and these, the tensions that come up with Israel. And again, that might not be true of the layperson. It might or it might not. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like, but, but it's not completely divorced either. Is that a not a fair thing to say? Like, I, I, I don't know. Like, I just feel like, do you, do you understand what I'm saying? I do understand what you're saying, but I, and I think that, that the universalism definitely is an issue, especially when it comes to our right to be in the land or our right-wing perspectives. You know what I'm saying? That we, we fundamentally disagree about those things, and you could bring that up and talk about it. Okay, but those are specific issues. But to blame, I, I, I look at it, it's, it's very interesting. I look at it a, a different way. Is reform the cause or is reform the effect? I mean, you're dealing with a group of, a group of Jews that, by definition, have have are are more identify with their Western identity of France or America or what have you, and Judaism is a part of their identity, but it's not their core identity. Someone who's Orthodox, I would hope, would understand that their Judaism is their core identity, and therefore, and has to form, and 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 helps me as a as a as a religious Jew form my opinions and form who I am and the choices that I make. I don't necessarily think that's true. If you're, if you're as, as Reformed Judaism, your 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 Westernization, your American identity, your cultural identity is there. Plus, Judaism is important to you, absolutely important to you. Mm -hmm. But so, therefore, one is going to be the effect of the other, a result from the other. Yeah. So, as an Orthodox Jew, as I, I you know, you call me a radical Orthodox Jew, or a right-wing Orthodox Jew, right? My sense of Westernization, or my my identity as an American, or my my place in culture. Is going to be affected by my Judaism, whereas, whereas I think if you're reformed, it would be the other way around. Your Judaism will be informed by your sense of place in the world, your multiculturalism. Okay, so now you're blaming point. reform, but the point is that the reform is a reaction to a shift in identity, right. a shift in who Sorry. we are. You know what I'm saying? And I think that 
I think that's an, it's, it's an interesting phenomenon to be aware of because you're, I, I, to me, the, the blame, like I don't agree with the form and I don't think we should agree, have any discussions religiously and I don't, because those are like, as the rabbi made this distinction. But to say, oh, you're evil because you changed our religion, yeah. you weren't going to, like that religion wasn't, wasn't in your worldview at all. It's not something that you... point that you're making. I do. Um, I think that... Oh, great. No, I do think it's a great point. I think it's a great point to frame it that way, that like, um, you know, that that, that, that the, the Judy, that, that, that there's the idea that their worldview comes from where their worldview comes from, and then, right? But I think that they might be insulted if you said that, right? And they, Would they be insulted to say that their Judaism, they, they, their Judaism like should they, reflect they their worldview? I'm now speaking as a Jew, Right, which I think that they would say as as a, as a reform rabbi, I'm now telling you what I think the Torah or Jewish values, right, tells me I you know about, let's say even the state of Israel, right, or a, anything like that. I, I I think that that's where the tension comes in because because they from their wait wait take that back a second. Jewish values as informed by what determines Jewish values but according they, to their but understanding. I'm saying, listen, I it's, think not have, uni- it's not it's not just. Point. One well, second. it's not just Moses on Sinai or the Talmud or the rabbis. Okay. What if what what informs my sense of Jewish values? From what I understand, I'm then if you're okay. a reformer, you will say that. Home, let me know. You will say that, and I I agree with you, but but I don't know if they'll say that, right? Like that might be very insulting. Like they might say, uh, "No, tell you what, what a good Jew thinks." But I think that's where it becomes stressful, right? Because like in the conversation, right, it becomes very embittered because it's like. You're attacking my Judaism, but your Judaism isn't true. Your Judaism, anyway, isn't really Judaism. It's all just secularism, and and that's what why people butt heads, right? And and, and well, reform is right to be kind of insulted when we're like, you're, you're not really Jewish. Your Judaism isn't really Jewish, and they're like, no. Wait, 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 second. There are two. No, I, it's not. It's not unfair to say their Judaism is not a reflection of traditional Judaism as passed down through the Talmud and right. through history. But they I'm, reform. I, they, I think they'd be the first to admit, yes, we reform that. We no longer believe in that. No, but I, so I don't think that's well, insulting. I think Johnny will probably you know, put this... Well, well I, I do want to... Johnny, start. help us here. Yes. sharpen if I can, which is I think that this is probably, and that's why I found your point so good, so helpful to me, I think this is probably a source of a lot of the conflict because um, I think... Um, Orthodox Jews get very upset because they see what, the, what a, let's say, a reform rabbi will be saying in the name of Judaism, and they'll say, but that's not real Judaism, and you're really, you know, it's really just informed by secular values, and, um, and, it, and, and I think that they're fighting kind of over, you know, what the authentic Judaism is, and, and, and I think that, that, it, that that's where the problem lies. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like the problem lies. I don't think that's what Ariella's problem is at all. I, don't, I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm just not. saying. I think that that's a big part of the problem. It's like, it's it's like you're saying this as if this is what Judaism believes. But I don't think that so says the Orthodox rabbi. I don't think so. The Judaism believes. I think that that's what you know Western culture believes, or whatever you want to call that. Um, and then that becomes a very and and then they're fighting. That becomes a source of contention. But let's hear Johnny, because I'm sure he'll... he'll... No, without a doubt, hear Johnny. Without a doubt, I think that you have to admit that it, their values are reflected by, it, by the, 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 see, the inculcation of Western values reflected through a Jewish lens. That may be the case, but let's be perfectly clear. What I just read was the brunt of this article. I think it's the longest of the three sections. Uh, almost all dealing with history, much of which didn't take place in the last century. And a lot of it emphasizing the fact that there was a rejection of Jewish nationalism and a failure to grasp Zionism. Now, I want to make it very, very clear. I can, you know, be very, very honest and and, uh, outline where I significantly disagree uh, in reform policy. And by the way, as mentioned before, there are different reform policies in the US, the UK, Europe, and Israel. I'm aware of those distinctions. Uh, uh, and, and those are some of these issues, some of those, you know, I take a significant issue to. Nevertheless, what has he said here? This is a response to a conversation, right? Rav Malamud didn't come along and say, you know what, forget orthodoxy, I'm going to join with you. He had a conversation. He knows all this. He just spent a whole bunch of paragraphs talking about history, which Rav Malamud knows. You know what, Rabbanit Delphine, Rabbi Delphine, knows all this history as well. But the point of history is that it took place then. The question is, is it legitimate to have a conversation now? And everything he said here 
doesn't necessarily have any bearing on, on the legitimization or, or delegitimization, for that matter, of having a conversation now. I'd add one further point, and I know we need to move on to Mali in the last piece of the article, which is, you know, if you take a position that says a hundred years ago, you didn't take the view of celebrating the state of Israel, well, then actually, as an Orthodox Jew, I'm in big trouble. Because a bunch of Orthodox <laughs> Jews that I can't talk to, because a hundred years ago, they too rejected Israel. In fact, not just a hundred years ago, maybe even yesterday, maybe even today. Does that mean I can't have a conversation? So this yeah. is the point. Rav, Rav, uh, Rav Ariel has basically said, I don't like the movement, I don't like the history, I don't like what they've done, uh, I, and I basically have no interest in even having the conversation based on what happened then. I'm saying to you, what happened then did happen then. And there are real issues now that you may well take issue with, which I take issue with, but you didn't identify them. And the very fact that you revoke to then and don't speak about now tells me so much of the fact that you know much more only of then than necessarily of now. And if your emphasis is so much about Jewish nationalism as opposed to Tom Mitzvot, which seems very strange for an Orthodox rabbi, then again, you're going to have real troubles as to justifying conversations and collaborations with a whole bunch of other people in the Jewish world. I want to go back to something I tried to talk about just before we get into Mali section. There is a lot, I have, from what I hear, there is a lot of negativity towards Israel today in the in the uh, in the reform movement, especially from reform rabbinic leadership. But I think a lot, it's, it's difficult for me to know. I think there's a lot of problems because of liberal politics. That's definitely true. I mean, without a doubt, many most many I don't know most many many uh, uh, liberal clergy, non-orthodox clergy are are on the very left side of our politics and see things in the Israeli-Palestinian struggle from a, from a different perspective, a much more American liberal perspective, as we're seeing. But there's also another uh, element at play, and that's the element of power politics. See, Rabbi Ariel, in, his, in writing his article, what's under, underlying the article is, I'm, I sit in a position of power. I have the ability to decide who is a Jew, who is not a Jew, what's Jewish and what's not. And moreover, I have the power to enforce that as the law of the state of Israel. And so therefore, why should I give up one scintilla of power to people that I have no desire to, to that I don't want to share anything with, and who I so, so fundamentally disagree with? And, and that, you know, just I try to put myself, if I was a reformed rabbi or a reformed Jew, that would tick me off. That would make me very, very angry. And, and I, I'm not sure I disagree with the power politics, I really don't know. I'm not like I struggle with this a lot. Like if I was in, you know, if I was the chief rabbi of Israel, which I don't want to be, but if I was the chief rabbi of Israel, I don't think I would necessarily change anything. But it doesn't mean you have to be triumphalist about it. It doesn't mean you have to be, you know. Um, I think the language can change, and the con communication can change, even if you don't want to give up the, the sense of power that you have. The question is, how do you wield that power, and, to, and in what way do you use it? And there, there, that's an underlying tone here, an underlying, I think, theme here that isn't being discussed. All right, Molly, you want to respond to that? Or you want to go uh, to yeah, I do just quickly, and then I'm, I'm busy Google translating because I feel bad on the only one who didn't do it, so I'm doing it as well. <laughs> um, do your best. Just do your best. Yeah, no, no, I'm doing it. I did. I, I got the Google Translate. Um, I, oh, but just hold on one second. I apologize. Now you lost it. Okay. I got you. I got you. Yeah. Um, I think that, that, that what you're saying is really correct, which is um, even if there are legitimate places in which um, we just, let's call it, the orthodox um, rabbinate, okay, in Israel, disagrees. The best way to, I don't want to use the words wage war, because that's not, that's not the right phrase. The best way to, um, to, to negotiate those differences is not from a place, as you're saying, Ruby, it's not from a place of, of like, well, I've got the power in my hands of the uh, of the rabbinate. I get to decide who's Jewish and who's not. Like you're fight it doesn't like you. It's like you won the war in certain ways. Like like the like that's what Johnny was saying before. Like you know, like just just the, the met. Like you don't have to to come from a such an adversarial place. You're gonna you're gonna you're gonna end up maybe winning more battles, but you're gonna lose the, the larger war that way. Come from a place of goodwill. Come from a place of 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 belief in your in your own perspective, um, and and come from you know what it is? It's the feeling threatened. Rivera, you don't have to feel so threatened by the reform world. Like, like you can be strong 
right? There's a very nice expression by Brene Brown, who's a social worker. She talks about strong back, soft heart, right? Like soft front, strong back. You can have a strong back. You can have a strong back about your beliefs about Zionism and about um, all kinds of other issues, right? And which will come up in, in the next section, which is where, for to, you know, to kind of give our real credit, he kind of points to what, what issues he's worried about today. You can have a strong back about your issues, but you can also have a soft front. You can have a soft heart. You can you can dialogue. You can communicate. You can seek to listen. You can seek to understand. That's what bothers me. I feel like that balance is off between the strong back and the soft heart. All right, so Molly, get to the third part. Get, um, yeah. And maybe in other, I people, other to... people, I find there isn't enough strong back. So, like, I want the strong back, but but, but what's lacking here is the soft is the soft heart. That's my. So go to your. I wanted you to do your section, yeah. the final section, because then we'll I get to. I wanted to add, like, I wanted, yeah, I wanted to, like, try to see it from his perspective as well. No. What's that? Okay, so I'm just gonna go ahead and read this part. Okay. I have to. I have to apologize. I did not. Um, I didn't check this before, so hopefully as. Oh, you just ran it through Google Translate. The farmers are battling oh, for recognition oh, by the establishment uh, in the state of Israel. Right? That's okay. They are indeed reaping certain successes in the political, legal, and media system. Most of whom do not know their view deeply. Okay, from their perspective, this is a different kind of Judaism. Those who stop the drift, meaning those, again, I'm going to have to do a little bit because of the translation. Those who are like standing in the way because the other areas like the media, political, legal, don't really understand what reform is. But those who really understand what reform is are the rabbis in Israel and, abo and abroad. And therefore, um, the reformers storm the rabbinic fortress, fortress with great force. They need recognition to gain legitimacy. It is this aspiration for recognition that underlines the Western world struggle. He's talking here about the woman of the wall and looking for, and looking for a place um, in an egalitarian space to, to daven. Um, I think that's a good way to say it. The original reform negates the temple and even erases it from the prayer arrangement. What to them and the relic of the temple? But they need legitimacy and therefore demand their own space. And even if it contradicts, even if it contradicts their view, although they are le um, like less likely to pray there, they need more noise than prayer. And therefore, there is room to reflect on the tactics to be taken on the sensitive issue. Because of their struggle for recognition, a new neighborhood in Israel has not been appointed for 20 years. I don't know what that politically refers to. No, a new neighborhood rabbi, so Rabbi Shkuna. Because I mean, the whole point is, that I'll just explain. We do not accept interfaith dialogues and symposia, particularly in relation to the reformers who desire recognition. Each joint performance meaning meeting with a um an orthodox meeting with a reform rabbi on religious issues uh, of a torah representative with their representatives strengthens their status and creates legitimacy this has serious consequences this encourages the continuation of the quiet holocaust that eliminates expatriate jewry assimilation i mean i i should not be giving commentary but i don't like using the Holocaust for anything. Um, there is room for cooperation on global issues, such as the fight against anti-Semitism, the strengthening of, the, of family values, if that's still important to them, support for the state of Israel, saving Jews, relief for the needy, and more. Religious Judaism in the United States has a lot of experience in this subject. They have been guided by Torah scholars, such as Rosh who set boundaries in these connections. It is worthwhile to learn from them, meaning Rosh and certain, certainly independent positions that do not harm them should not be taken here. That's a critique. Hold on a second. Molly, can you hear us? Contact Molly? with reformers also have implications for observant Jews in Israel. Can you hear us? Um, the public here is very, or Jews in Israel. The public is very diverse. There are Mahajan and there are, <laughs> translates their headaches. He means make kilrosh. There are people who take who take halacha more seriously and that seriously. But everyone knows that there is a limit that is not crossed, and that is reform. If you try to accuse anyone who overstates a particular subject of being reform, it will rightly consider a derogatory word and promptly explain, I am not. I am not, uh, God forbid, reform. Learn the boundaries between Judaism, even less serious Judaism, and reform can break the dam and lead many to reform. The precarious existence of the commandments may be loosened completely. If reform is also a legitimate form of Judaism, you can be a good Jew and also be reformed. There is serious concern with the penetration of reform into our home. This is actually the goal of the reformers, and it is naive to think otherwise. To sum up, reform are Jews by their attribution and should be brought closer to Judaism. They are in danger of being assimilated and command we are commanded to save them. But, to do this, but the way to do this is to bring them to identify with Jewish nationalism and the need to maintain its existence and heritage from Sinai. So basically, national and halacha. By contrast, blurring the boundaries between Judaism and the Reform may also keep uh, may also leave lead observant people towards Reform. A dialogue between the Torah, a Torah representative and a Reformer representative push, puts them both on the same plane, even if they stand at either side of the barricade. This comparison, or I guess this parallel, God forbid, undermines the very essence of the people of Israel and its teachings. Blessed be God, who who, uh, who created us in His honor and distinguishes distinguished us from the wrong, from the, the mistaken. I would say. So. Um, my I have to say that last section, it was like, 
shocking in a number of different ways. The, the part that most upset me uh, personally was that, that he, he almost takes pride in the fact that a religious Jew okay, uh, would not want to be called, be insulted by being called, being called reformed, saying, God forbid, I'm not reformed. And, and like, just it goes right into what you talked about, about having this, the strong spine and the, and the, and the, and the soft front, whatever you said, I don't remember, <laughs> very eloquent. I find, that, I find it so disturbing to, to talk about another group of people in a way that's considered, that's considered an insult, a, a group of Jews, as it were. I find that very, very problematic, very, very troubling. I, I don't have any answer for that. Johnny? <laughs> what do you want me to say? That I'm happy with it? I mean, <laughs> I, 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 my feeling was... How do we stop? No, I say this. How do we stop it? How do we get people to stop using another group of Jews as, as, as an insult? In our community, I find it abhorrent. They, they need, the fact is, as, as we know, most Israelis don't know Reform Jews. So for them, Reform is just this distant thing. It's a label that you, you throw onto people. It's profoundly wrong. But when you get to meet people who are different from you, you may be able to start understanding that maybe we're a lot, lot more similar than different. I wrote a, my yeah, thought on that yesterday. Meet was with all them. about His that. whole point is we can't meet with them. Right, and that's that's the whole issue. What he's done is listed every uh, single critique, mostly from the past, uh, based on the street, based on what seems to be familiar to him on his radar as to why I can't even have a conversation. Remember, we're not talking about collaboration. We're not talking about you know moving together. We're saying, can we talk? And the answer to, to him is, you shouldn't, and anybody who does is wrong, and here's all the reasons why. And, and say that the article to my mind is profoundly disjointed, not because, and I want to make it clear, a person has every right to make a firm, robust crit critique as to why they feel that there are major areas of disagreement, and maybe even why they personally feel they can't have that conversation. I think that's their right. My, my belief, though, is a nuanced religious leader has to make that robust argument based on facts on the ground that are relevant to what actually is happening in the world. And if that doesn't happen, that makes me ask myself, you know, you know, how, how can somebody be making rulings, quite literally, social policy rulings, based on merely books of the past and, and what seems to be the narratives of the past, and what people say about people, most of whom they have never met, a reformed Jew, let alone a reformed leader. You see, what's really interesting is to me, Rabbi Ariel would never do such a thing, and he's and you know that he does it in areas of science, in the areas of technology, in other areas that he doesn't know about. He will sit, he will find out everything he needs to find out in order to make a ruling and apply the halakha. But here we have like a, a, I would call it a social science, if it were, and you don't see any effort to find out what what is the situation today. Have things changed between then and now? I don't know if I agree with you guys. I don't know if I, I, I don't know if he's. I think he he's hearing things about the present, like he's talking about present events. He just has a very um, yeah, high resolution as opposed to low resolution understanding. Like the way he describes what's happening at the hotel is a very. It's 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 not that he doesn't know what's happening today. It's not that he's fighting a battle of a hundred years ago. But his his understanding of what's going on there is just very very, very low resolution. It's, it's, it's just way too broad. It's, 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 it, I can't, I can't say it in any other well, way. Well, actually, it's interesting. The Kotel thing is interesting because I, like, I understand that perspective. If you're sitting here okay. from Israel and you see these, like, Americans, as it were, coming in and demanding a place at the Kotel, you say, this, one second, there's like five of you here and so, okay. you want, you want to have, but like, that, that's like, why so, I said so high then, resolution versus low resolution, right? If you go into high resolution, there might be some things that he's saying that are true and legitimate and important in the conversation. But if you're going to go high resolution, please talk to a woman of the wall, right? And speak to the women who actually come. And I think what you'll find is that you might there might be some truth to certain arguments that a lot of it is about public policy and whatever. But you'll probably also find women who really strongly... Um, feel that this is something that's that, that's very very dear to their hearts and to their religion so like you have to you can't stay in that high resolu resolution even if there's some truth 
to the blurry picture, if you don't have a more sophisticated understanding, you're you're not having an effect. You can't have an, any any type of an effective dialogue, which is what I said before. I, I also that's, thought that the sort of dig that. about. I always thought that the dig about like what do they have to do with the beta midash? No, no one even agree that there should be a beta midash. That's what I'm the language is no. I, but I'm saying that that's a lack of understanding that. That co the Kotel has nechon, become nechon, a symbol nechon, nechon. of the place to pray as a Jew. Irrespective of the Beit HaMikdash. To be honest with you, I don't know how many Orthodox people think of it as the, the place of the Beit HaMikdash. Right, but honestly. I want to also say, I, wanna, I, wanna, I don't know if I, I want to question it. I don't want to challenge it fully, but I want to question it when, when you said um, in other areas, people, you know, rabbis work so hard to understand everything. I, Dafka, felt differently. I felt like this was symptomatic of a larger problem with not always, but sometimes a, a, rabbin, a, a certain rabbinic approach to maybe it's like um, so, certain social modern issues where, where they're not, they, they have an overabundance of confidence in their own perspective and either what they see or what they're told and they're not able to kind, and again, this is why I think Rev Malamed is such a, um, a great model um, and it comes up in other issues, right? It comes up in other areas. Yeah, my, my, let's turn it to Johnny, because Johnny obviously has read many more true, but, right, but, you, but you understand what have? I'm saying? What I'm so, saying is Johnny, I don't is think that true this. or is it not true? No, I want to say what I'm just going to finish my point. I want to say that to me, that's what this, this is symptomatic of. It's like, even if it's not true about Ravariel in particular, I agree with Johnny about this point about leadership is that the leaders that I look to are the types of, of certainly in, in, in rabbinic leadership, the kind that are humble enough to know what they know, what they don't know, what what's in the books and what's not in the books, and when they need to hear from people whose areas of expertise are outside of the rabbinic, um, you know, bookshelf. That to me is really important. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like if, if it yeah, but I, I really my perception of Rabbi Ariel is that he's a, he's he does, a you're right. I'm just saying I think there's like a larger. That's what bothers me more in the bigger picture. But sorry, Johnny. Johnny, is this unique or, or general in your perception? of somebody writing an article and seemingly having their mind made up uh, before they've put pen to paper. Uh, I think that happens often. Uh, I think this is an expression of it. I think he's expressing what we may well argue to be the party line, and he feels that a boke has been unhelpfully rocked, and he is coming out guns blazing to make it clear that there's a whole bunch of reasons why these conversations sh shouldn't be happening, and certainly not on my watch. Um, and, and, and I want to say one more time, I think every leader has the right and the duty to make clear their position. And sometimes the answer is absolutely no. But I believe that that answer should be based on the reality and experience and understanding of what's taking place. My, I was disappointed by the article precisly for the reasons the most that we all of us have, have outlined, which is that mostly they're historic. Uh, mostly based on what people are saying about people or organizations, not necessarily uh, based on current developments. As mentioned, we're talking about a European uh, reform rabbi, and therefore a lot of the models being described really don't seem to, to, to necessarily make sense. Uh, and I go back to Mali's point, which is, this is, and, and, and I'm not in any which way implying, it's not for me to, to speak about the midot of anybody, but... I was incredibly impressed by, and this is what was highlighted in the profile about Rav Malamed, and he, there, both he and also Rav Shmuel Eliyahu was mentioned, that they've been prepared to publicly say, we're, we are happy to undergo, we're prepared to undergo paradigm shift, look at things differently. It's not going to change their lifestyle or what they're teaching. We're not talking about dilution of attitudes or commitment or loyalty to halacha. But... Perhaps party lines sometimes need to be revisited. And so we had here basically Rav Malamad saying, I'm prepared to do that. That won't uh, change my loyalty to all these things or my commitment. But I am prepared to have conversations because I don't think that necessarily conflicts. And we spoke about this a few weeks ago. And what I see in this article is, uh, basically I started reading the first few words and I said, I know what's going to say. Uh, and in fact, the more I read it, the more I felt it was not even saying what I hoped it would say really well. And that, I, my heart dropped in many ways precisely because of the reverence that I have for the scholarship of uh, uh, Rav Ariel and others for that matter. So I found, I just want to point out, we've, we've got to stop, I'm going very long. One thing I found fascinating was 
Rabbi Ariel's perspective that, like, I've never seen an Israeli rabbi say that the, that the religious leadership in America has much more experience about this, okay? And it's worthwhile to learn from them, and we should, you know, that we shouldn't take individual uh, perspectives that hapogot for him. So then the question becomes, okay, which ones? Who? Like, who are you going to learn from? Which rabbis? And if he mentions Rav Soloveitchik, I find it ironic that at least from the perspective that of all the people that I know who spoke, you know, in the name of the Rub, the Rub would not have any problem with sitting on a panel with a reformed rabbi talking about Kalali Sarat issues, as he mentioned. And I would say, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that at least that perspective, and as, as um, more and more time goes along, I think that this, this idea, especially even Rab Malamed, um, I know that uh, Anglo rabbis, Chutzla'aretz uh, Rabbanim definitely have a relationship with these leading rabbis and definitely have an impact on the perspectives that they take. And uh, I think I'd like to see more of that over time. And that the younger Rabbi Ariels and the up and coming and the next ones will, will think in, uh, twice before having such a harsh reaction and hopefully take some leadership and take some, uh, take some, some of their cues from the Chutzla'aretz Rabbanut, who has a lot of experience in these issues. Mal, you want to conclude? Want to yeah, I agree with you. Well, that's a great way to include. Okay, we'll, we'll stop here. Um, and uh, thank everybody for listening. I, I want to mention we're on Spotify, iTunes, uh, all of the basic apps. But if you listen on iTunes and you leave us a review, that will help new people discover our podcast. We've gotten pretty positive reviews, which is a good thing, because if you're still listening, hopefully uh, you're one of them. I want to thank uh, Molly Grafsky, uh, Johnny Solomon, my son, Patakis Walter, for writing our music, and wish everybody a great week. Bye now. <laughs>